Welcome to Cato Audio for September 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, Patrick Eddington details the galling federal surveillance of concerned women of America. The ACLU's Somil Trivedi shows how the plea bargain is just another tool of state coercion. Democratic U.S. Representative Bonnie Watson Coleman explains why she wants to end a large share of federal drug enforcement. And Cato's Michael Cannon details why the controversy over a new Alzheimer's drug misses perhaps the most important truth. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. If you're a longtime listener to Cato Audio, you will know that in the September edition of Cato Audio, we talk about the cases that will be discussed in depth at the upcoming Cato Institute Constitution Day festivities uh, slated for September 17th. Uh, And I'm speaking with Trevor Burris, the editor of the Cato Institute's Supreme Court Review, and Walter Olson, a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, to talk about some of the cases that the Cato Institute briefed in and uh, some cases that are uh, just super important for uh, us to understand as we go forward with respect to what our rights are as interpreted by the United States Supreme Court. So, uh, Walter, if you don't mind, I want to I start with you. Let's talk about Fulton. And uh, I know this is uh, an important issue to you as an adoptive parent. And uh, so tell us about what Fulton, this case, was all about. Fulton versus City of Philadelphia was about the foster care program of the City of Philadelphia, which, like similar programs in a number of other big cities and states, got onto a collision course with Catholic social services and other conservative foster care agencies, but CSS in particular, over anti-discrimination laws, and in particular, the demand that they do home studies for all prospective parents. And this had been going up through the courts and was widely expected to be the next big case in the series of religious accommodations and the Constitution cases uh, symbolized by the cake shop cases and some others. And so what happened was not on most people's prediction list, which was a unanimous victory for uh, Catholic social services, but on somewhat peculiar grounds, uh, not on sweeping grounds, but still on grounds that were a significant departure, I would say, for the court. First, the court made a couple of uh, convenient factual assumptions. It said that the city's anti-discrimination ordinance applied only to public accommodations, and the foster care provider was not a public accommodation. Well, that surprised people because it hadn't been even been considered a major issue. And it also somewhat more immediately said that it would henceforth interpret its big constitutional decision on religious accommodation. And that precedent as to go back, which we owe to late Justice Antonin Scalia, said that a neutral and generally applicable law does not have to constitutionally have religious exemptions. It can force religious people to obey the same rules as anyone else. But the court added now a new kind of asterisk or exception. If there is an exceptions process, or if there is any other discretion allowing for the 
waiving of the rules, then that has to be given, or at least has to be considered to be given, to religious objectors. And that had not been an understood part exactly, depending on how you look at the cases. And again, interestingly, this was a unanimous decision, and it means that the Roberts Court has once again successfully dodged another round in the culture wars. Uh, and, and one of the interesting developments to me is, is what the liberals signed on to here, because to me, a, a rather significant strengthening of the hand of religious objectors compared to what we had had before. Uh, but at the same time, they kind of negotiated a majority down. Now, three of the conservative justices said, no, we need to go further. We need to dive right into the direct question of whether we should go back and revisit or overturn Smith. This has been a, a key objective for many religious litigation groups. But instead, justices in the middle of the court pulled back and said, no, we'd rather decide this more narrowly. Let's not reach that, okay, a move that the court has made again and again, much to the satisfaction of justices like Chief Justice Roberts, but also including in this case, I believe, Kavanaugh and, and Amy Coney Barrett. And so you get a pretty significant conservative if you will, or pro-religious accommodation, short-term victory. Significantly, to me, again, the liberal justices were willing to sign on to something saying that the application of aid anti-discrimination law is not necessarily a fundamental interest of the government. Wow. I mean, this is, these are not your parents' liberal Supreme Court justices. And who knows where that will go in the, in the future. But it was, as I say, consensus of a sort that no one was looking for. Let's talk about the lack of a better term, the left and their preferences in this case versus what they said the day this decision came down. <laughs> the day the decision came down, inevitably, through organizational self-interest or whatever, they were saying, oh, it's great. We won. We were, we practically won. You know, look, look at what we averted. But it was, to me, a very different outcome than almost any law professor who had weighed in. Of course, they had nearly all weighed in on, on the liberal side because it has been really hard to challenge up until recently the idea that anti-discrimination law is the most powerful thing that government is meant to do. I am reminded of an anecdote, and this is set from a few years ago. I, I have no reason to doubt its truth, but college students were having a late night debate about anarchism, and one of them said in all earnestness, but if, if there were no government, who would enforce anti-discrimination law? You know, it's it's no longer national defense. It's no longer the roads that, that are, are thought to be the core function. It's, it's anti-discrimination law is supposed to be at the core of what the good modern state is about. And yet, the Supreme Court has been signaling for years, and it now may have nine justices for the view, that no, it needs to be balanced against other constitutional interests, other liberty interests, other practical and, and administrative interests of, of making institutions work decently. Because in the back of their minds, I think, for all non-justices was the fact that if you get the rules wrong and you drive an effective, successful agency out of the foster care business, that what remains, agencies that may be left willing to work with the city, may not be as good at placing children. They may not be as good at making foster care work. And the kids suffer. So there are some related cases here uh, that the court did not decide with uh, oral argument. Uh, what are those about? 
Well, on the, the court's so-called shadow docket, and this is a term that uh, people have just had to learn over the last couple of years, but it's the cases that get decided on a foreshortened procedure that doesn't involve having oral argument, doesn't involve the, the full briefing and then the paraphernalia and rigmarole of, of the big Supreme Court cases or the, the, the obvious, the big ones. Uh, in the shadow docket, people are seeking to get or overturn stays and in temporary injunctions of different sorts. There's usually some emergency aspect of it. And more and more cases have been reaching the court in this way. And the rules on whether they have to write opinions are different. And usually there are fewer opinions, sometimes none, or sometimes just one of the justices will, will make their views known. But this shadow docket has grown uh, tremendously to some of the most interesting things the court has done in the past couple of years. And let's just stick with the religious liberty side, because you might have predicted again a year and a half ago that the COVID-19 pandemic would dramatically change American law or the work of the Supreme Court or constitutional law. And for the most part, it has not done that. Mostly, the state of the law has not changed, with one important exception, which developed over the course of a bunch of shadow docket cases. And that is the churches and public health law. When we started out, most people reading what was considered to be a settled state of public health law could say that local authorities had a lot of discretion to order churches closed if they were the source of potential communicable disease transmission. And when governors and mayors began doing that, uh, the churches and their congregations sued. And the first couple of cases tended to be resolved in favor of the governors and the mayors uh, because they were carrying forward that uh, kind of the dead weight of the past in which it had always been assumed that churches, uh, again, tying right back into the Smith line of cases about no constitutional right to religious accommodation. It was assumed that this was also true in this area. And But what happened over the course of last summer was that the um, churches began winning. And the uh, and this continued as the year went on with a case involving Governor Cuomo in New York and church closures. And what emerged as the majority shifted uh, on the court was, uh, some have described it as a most, most favored nation rule. Uh, it isn't that there can be no regulation of churches, but the if the churches can point to any plausibly comparable activity that is being allowed to go forward, then they should have gotten an exemption too. And you see the parallel with the Fulton case, where this was also the court's reasoning. Between the two areas, again, religious liberty law has shifted in a direction favorable toward churches and their members. All right. Wrapping that up, a uh, let's talk a little bit about speech and uh, the cases that uh, implicate speech. Uh, and let's start with uh, what is known by many names, just by a young girl's initials. Uh, just as the cursing cheerleader case, the Snapchat uh, tirade young woman. So, uh, Trevor, this was uh, a near unanimous court, if I'm not mistaken. And what was the case about? Yeah, as you pointed out, the, the Mahanoy versus school district versus BL, uh, which was the how the court usually refers to minors. She later... Uh, voluntarily put her name out there as Brandy Levy, I think. Um, so she did not get onto the varsity cheerleading squad. 
And in response, she opened up Snapchat and let's just say dropped some F-bombs, to say the least, which was then, uh, this was not done on school grounds, um, but it was then shown to the coach of the cheerleading team and the administration of her high school decided that she was going to be disciplined by being kicked off of the JV cheerleading squad. So her parents and her, they sued as they had their right to and as they should have. And and the big question in this case is that what we've seen since a case called Tinker versus Des Moines, which is the landmark case from the 60s where the famous line is that, you know, school children's rights do not end at the schoolhouse door. But we've seen a difficulty deciding when school is and what are school activities. And so a lot of the cases that have come up, uh, most recent one was the so-called bong hits for Jesus case, which was off campus speech, but connected to a event. And what you see in the Supreme Court generally is it's, they're always the same, basically like there's three institutions in particular, they get a lot of deference to the Supreme Court from the Supreme Court in terms of how they manage themselves, prisons, the military and schools. So like, so generally when school administrators are like, we need to shut down on this speech because in our judgment, it makes for a better educational environment or something like this. But obviously, you know, at some point, if you're just doing a Snapchat, off school grounds, you're going to need someone to define that this is no longer, you know, the kind of area that schools should be involved in. But parents, you know, if they need to discipline her, then the parents can do it. Yes, and it, and the only dissenter in this was was uh, Justice Tom. Well, Thomas doesn't generally think that school children have free speech rights due to his originalist reading of the First Amendment. But Justice Breyer wrote a majority opinion. That is good. Um, it's very Justice Breyer-esque in the sense that there was a lot of people saying, well, you know, there has to be some ability for the schools to discipline even off-campus speech to some extent, such as bullying and the kind of concerns that are coming up. So we don't really have a super clear opinion except for the fact that she won. Uh, and and now we're going to have the lower courts chew on this in terms of defining school speech, like in school or speech that administrators have a justified concern with and therefore may not be protected by the First Amendment. But the cussing cheerleader won in the end. All right. And that seems like in keeping with uh, the high court's First Amendment jurisprudence of the last few decades. Is that right? Uh, Yes. Well, it, it is. They don't take as many school speech cases as sort of the period from Tinker on. In a Frederick v. Morse case, which was the bong hits for Jesus, that was the last really significant school free speech case. Um, right. But I guess I just mean generally a very broad view of the protections of the First Amendment. Yes. And that's, you know, right now, or you know, really now in a very, like, maybe last 10, 15 years, you know, we probably have the most protective of free speech court that maybe we've ever seen. Um, and so this, you know, we have an 8-1 decision in this case uh, with Thomas being the only dissenter, as I said. But as I said, it's... Um, it's not a. I, some people would say it's not like a slam dunk victory, saying student speech is protected stronger now than it was. It's more of a nuanced factual analysis, like where was the student when they put their thing on social media, and like you know, did it inco- involve bullying or any of these kind of things? And since it wasn't that, then she wins. All right, another speech-related case: Americans for Prosperity v. Bonta. This is about the degree to which the state of California can demand lists of donors from nonprofits that raise money 
in the state of California. Yeah, this was a really massively important case. Kind of thinking about what you'd asked with Wally about Fulton and everyone freaking out about that kind of religious liberty thing. So there was a lot of freaking out about the ability to keep your donors private um, from a state that was trying to get the top I mean, it's called a Schedule B. It's an IRS form that either has your top donors or people who give over a certain amount. So Americans for Prosperity Foundation and another organization called Thomas More Law Center were subject to this request from, at the time, Kamala Harris, who was the Attorney General of California. And the claim was that they needed this Schedule B to police fraud and other types of malfeasance that can happen with charities. And this is all charities, not just political charities, but all charities, if it's food bank or whatever. And this fight had been going on. It's been going on for, I mean, it really went on for about 10 years. Uh, and the interesting thing in the Americans for Prosperity case, this is very different than most Supreme Court cases, especially the ones that I work on, which when you get a Supreme Court case, it's usually on what's called summary judgment, which means there's no underlying factual dispute. But the claim in this case was that California gets our donor list and our donors could be subject to harassment and death threats and all this stuff, which we've seen, you know, increasingly become common with political giving over the last decade. I, I was going to say, I was going to say, this is very clearly something that is a legitimate concern. Yes. More so now than ever. <laughs> Especially, and, and as I think you and I discussed for the Cater Daily podcast uh, when this case came down, this occurred the same week, this case came down the same week that the IRS data on some of the richest people on the planet had been leaked uh, to ProPublica. <laughs> exactly. And it's it's just, it's an interesting thing that the, the government of California tried to claim that, it, you know, it really protected the donor information and it wasn't going to have any leaks, even though 1800 had leaked out to the internet. And then Americans for Prosperity and Thomas More Law Center were able to demonstrate beyond really any dispute, not even the dissenting, you know, Justice Sonia Sotomayor, she kind of has this weird line in her dissent saying, well, I don't dispute the fact that there were threats and stuff uh, to these to the, the donors of these organizations. So, I mean, I think it's a really big case. And the disturbing thing is it's going to be thrown in with the dark money rhetoric that we hear so much now, which itself is not a meaningful concept. It's just a really good rhetoric, political rhetorical concept. But this is not anything to do with campaigns, first of all. Like, this is any organization that raises money in California, but even if you don't even talk about candidates for office, uh, this is they wanted the donor information. And the question here is you need to give a good reason for this. And that's ultimately what the court decided, that, that just like it decided in 1958 when they said that Alabama couldn't get the donor information of the NAACP because they clearly had some, you know, bad motives for that. Um, that you really need a good reason to make people disclose or even put at the risk of disclosure their political activity. So it's a major victory. Um, and, you know, don't pay attention to any of the rhetoric about how this is imperiling necessarily campaign or this election related. No, this is just basic keeping your political activities and other activities private if you don't want your neighbors to be able to Google you and see who you give money to. So going forward with this case, and I, and I, and I say this, this case would have been of great interest to supporters of this institution, the Cato Institute. There are uh, at least a couple of senators in, in the U.S. Senate who have, have made a big deal out of people giving money to Cato. I can remember Charles Schumer not that long ago saying, yeah, chilling your activity is part of the point 
of disclosing this information. Yes, and it's uh, it's interesting because um, sometimes the, when the the left people people on this uh, other side of this debate like to quote some lines from Justice Scalia in a case called Doe v. Reed, where he kind of seems to endorse the fact that like the chilling effect of of your upon people who have you know let's say bad political views or something like you don't you might want to know who's giving to the Nazi party or something like this but really Justice Scalia didn't take that as far as people think that he did he just sort of said like for people who you know don't have the I guess the don't have the attitude that Justice Scalia had and the pugnaciousness of like not caring what people think about him and what he thinks about things that's one that's one thing but there's a lot of people who just are much more timid and they do not want people to know what they think about things or what the pol- political organizations they're giving to. So um, it's, yeah, it's a massively important thing. And that's, that it applies to Cato. It applies to the ACLU. It applies to all organizations raising money in California. It's probably not easy to overstate the weirdness of not just this Supreme Court term, but of course, life in the United States uh, during this term. We had a global pandemic raging. Uh, the Supreme Court uh, went remote. Uh, uh, are they still remote? Yes, there's been no determination. I expect, given the Delta variant, that they'll probably stay remote. Uh, but there's been, yeah, there's been no uh, determination on whether or not they'll continue telephonically on the arguments. Okay. And of course, we had a presidential election last year as well. And in addition, of course, adding Amy Coney Barrett to the high court. Uh, This is to to either of you. The Supreme Court was asked to deal with uh, or answer some questions related to uh, Donald Trump and John Eastman, who's famously now spoke at that January 6th rally. Uh, on, on the National Mall that uh, preceded just by an hour or so the attack on the Capitol that is uh, the subject of, of a great deal of controversy now. What did the court say? Uh, what were these cases about and what did the court say? I don't mean to brag, but I said fairly early in the season of election controversy that I thought the likely outcome was that the Supreme Court would hear no cases related to the election and the challenges against it. And that was indeed how it turned out. It was presented with the Eastman-related case on behalf of Texas, and it refused to hear it. And the only justices who signaled that they would have ruled differently, Alito and Thomas, were following up on an old principle of theirs that the, the court should at least open the door for all cases filed by states against states. It had nothing to do with finding uh, merit necessarily in, in the arguments. And now, uh, what, were, what were the cases about? Uh, the cases alleged that it violated the rights of Texas and its citizens for Pennsylvania to follow inappropriate election law. And this was not well grounded in earlier Supreme Court precedent. Uh, it was, if taken seriously, it opened up the prospect of a litigation war of all against all, in which every state could be sued by every other state on similar grounds. It was, in in my view and that of, I think, many other people, just so extraordinarily weak as a legal claim that the fact that the state of Texas, or at least its attorney general, uh, was made to endorse it is one of the marvels passing belief of the year. Uh, and yet there it was. Uh, a lawsuit is presumably serious if it has a state as plaintiff. Uh, but again, the Supreme Court 
which, you know, we went through a lot of the fall with people imagining that the Supreme Court was eager to make itself the arbiter of who wins elections. Uh, and I think that the politics of the Supreme Court has probably never been that way. But most of all, the Supreme Court wants to restrict itself to deciding legal issues that need to be resolved rather than resolving elections. And in this case, the lower federal courts had spoken quite authoritatively on the great majority of cases which go up through a normal process of filtering up through district and appeals courts. State versus state cases are different. And so that one uh, you know, could knock on the, the door of the Supreme Court directly. Uh, in other cases, it was simply a matter of not granting certiorari were requested. But again, the, there is no indication that there was any sympathy on the part of Trump's own appointees, let alone the other justices, for uh, going to the rescue of his weak claims. All right. I, I want to talk about one more case, and then we'll talk about the future here, uh, and that is Cedar Point. Uh, this is uh, regarding a nursery in California that was required to do what exactly? Yeah. It's, I, to me, Cedar Point is the sort of secret blockbuster of the, of the term. It came out the same day as Mahanoy. Um, so, People were talking more about the cussing cheerleader case, but what happened in this case was, as you said, Caleb, the state of California to facilitate union organizing of agribusiness uh, allows union organizers to enter onto the land, the private property of the agribusiness, in this case, he said a nursery, in order to organize its workers into unions. And it allows that, it allowed that up to three hours a day and 120 days a year. So basically, this is something akin to saying that if someone could come into your house up to three hours a day at 120 days a year, pursuant to a state statute, the claim in this case was that that's a taking. Now, I won't get too much in the weeds of the takings, you know, but there's types of takings that are the, the classic, you know, we're taking your house and putting a road or a school there. That's just a pure possessory taking. But there are other regulations that can be put on property that the court has ruled are functionally a taking. A taking. Therefore, they deserve just compensation. Um, what was really important in this case was that the chief justice ruled the way we wanted them to, which was that because this was a physical occupation, it was a per se taking. There was no balancing this old this case called Penn Central has created a massively um, unpredictable balancing test when you try and weigh different interests of the state and the property holder against each other. Now, this is said in line with a few other cases, and I think more in line with the traditional Anglo-American property rule, that if the government lets people onto your land at this rate especially, uh, but but it actually doesn't even matter the the amount of time doesn't actually even matter. Uh, it just says if they're letting someone onto your land, then it's a physical occupation and it's just a taking. That's it. And therefore, compensation is owed. What's going to happen going forward is anyone's guess, because it's a pretty big change in law that makes it more predictable than the previous tests. But there's a lot to sort of work out in lower courts to try and figure out what sort of things are fundamental property rights that get taken and which ones are sort of more uh, peripheral. But that's for future courts to decide. What is the makeup of this court? This was Amy Coney Barrett's first term, not quite a full term on the court. But what what do we know about her? What do we know about Brett Kavanaugh that we didn't know before? And and what is the makeup of a lot of the opinions that we've seen in this term? Well, it had been predicted certainly by a lot of 
Justice Barrett's critics, that she was going to immediately join the justices like Clarence Thomas, perhaps Alito and, and, and Gorsuch. And I always th thought there was doubt about that because her writings, both on the bench and uh, as a law professor, seemed to me to be very cautious. She was nonetheless treated as the next coming of the arch conservative handmaid's tale yes yeah yes the arch conservative and so what we found out this year was in a series of opinions she was indeed cautious she often joined with Kavanaugh in particular and Roberts very often as a sort of center block to move only incrementally that happened in Fulton it was visible in some other cases as well. And so people now have to go back and, and rethink. There is a lot of talk about a 333 court in which you have the three liberals. You have Thomas, Gorsuch, and Alito, although Gorsuch and Alito are quite different from each other. But nonetheless, they are both similar in being willing to be somewhat aggressive where they think they're right and interested in changing precedent fairly rapidly sometimes. And, and then you have Amy Coney Barrett with Roberts and with Kavanaugh, and sometimes this is interpreted as institutionalism, as wanting to guard the court itself from being made illegitimate or too unpopular. But I think each of the three is somewhat different, and each of the three may reach their preferences by somewhat a different route. But they are all more cautious about rapid changes, rapid development of new doctrine than uh, the, the three justices to their quote, right unquote. And I think it's important to note that, you know, in the background here, after the court shifts from 5-4 in the traditional idea of Republican appointees versus Democrat appointees to 6-3, I think John Roberts, with this being his court, the way to understand a lot of what he does, and I think Wally's correct that it seems like Justice Barrett and Justice Kavanaugh definitely are more on this side, is the institutionalism, the fear that the court goes too far and people start thinking that it's only a political institution. It's not deciding cases according to law. And that's something that Jeff, that John Roberts, I think, is very, very scared of. Um, but now, they don't need his vote necessarily. But what you saw this year was, I think, a lot of his fingerprints trying to make sure that the court stays the course, doesn't over-decide cases, and tries to pull together coalitions as much as possible. And, and you know, 43% of the decisions were unanimous. Uh, and so we saw a bunch of surprising ones. And I think we'll just see more of that going forward. Okay. We were going to talk about the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association, but we're not going to. Instead, I will tell people to tune in to the Cato Institute's Constitution Day festivities uh, in September here. Uh, and if you're listening this, to this disc beforehand, of course, you can tune in. But if you're listening to it afterwards, it will be archived on our website at cato.org. Trevor Burris is the editor of the Cato Institute's first and best review of the most recent Supreme Court term produced every year in rapid fashion. If you could see how this thing comes together, you would be amazed at how uh, quickly Cato puts this out. And Trevor gets a lot of credit for uh, being in charge of wrangling cats, as it were, to get these documents lined up and in a nice, readable, publicly accessible, readable format for uh, the public. And uh, Walter Olson, a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, who, of course, uh, I speak with regularly on issues of importance uh, in the legal world. So thank you all very much. And you, of course, can uh, watch 
all of this as it unfolds at the Cato Institute on September 17th uh, at our website, cato.org. Do FBI agents have too much free time? Cato's Patrick Eddington has discovered that Concerned Women of America has been subjected to FBI inquiries with no claims of criminal activity. We spoke for the Cato Daily Podcast. You have been engaged in a project to uh, research and understand more clearly the nature of government surveillance of civil society groups, of other groups, certain uh, high-profile individuals, other low-profile individuals who nonetheless have the potential for great impact. And the feds, in, in undertaking this surveillance, sometimes without any real suspicion, they have then needled these groups or uh, bothered them in some way in, in ways that are uh, untoward and uh, not appropriate. So what is the latest example here? Well, it, to be fair, uh, you know, this has been a phenomenon that has largely throughout history been targeted at folks uh, on, on the left, but uh, not exclusively. And very recently, uh, we got confirmation of that fact when the FBI, to my astonishment, actually turned over uh, a redacted so-called assessment, and we'll talk about what that means in a moment, an assessment that was uh, run against the Concerned Women for America, one of the most venerable, conservative, uh, Christian-oriented female organizations, uh, domestic policy organizations in the country uh, from July of, of 2016, so you know five years ago. And it was rather amazing to, to read this document and to see that a particular analyst uh, or FBI agent had taken it upon his or herself uh, to decide without any criminal predicate whatsoever uh, to examine with the possibility, and this is the phrase from the document, the possibility that concerned women for America was engaged in some kind of fraud. And they proceeded to essentially use a, a charity navigator score. And for those of you who uh, are, are into giving uh, to nonprofit organizations, you're probably familiar with charity navigator. Uh, basically trying to cue off of the Charity Navigator score, as well as some uh, uh, sources of information that the FBI has chosen to withhold from us uh, that were so-called red flags uh, of, of alleged or suspected uh, embezzlement or something along those lines. And then they went in and apparently searched some additional uh, FBI databases that they chose to redact the names of. Uh, and actually found absolutely no derogatory information whatsoever on the organization and therefore decided that they would not proceed to the next level, uh, which would have been a preliminary investigation. And the point of the whole exercise here is this. They should never have done it in the first place. Nobody came to the FBI and said, hey, Concerned Women for America, I've got dirt on them. They're, you know, they're embezzling money or they're, they're lying to their supporters. They're lying to their contributors. None of this, none of this was the case. And what we should draw from this essentially is a giant concern. Uh, if you are with a nonprofit anywhere, if you're involved in a nonprofit, if you work for a nonprofit, if you're on the board of directors of a nonprofit, you should be deeply concerned that the FBI has people with enough time on their hands to cruise through databases, just literally looking for things to do to potentially target your organization in the absence of a real criminal predicate. So this is a big deal. Uh, as is our policy at Cato, we brought this to the attention uh, of Penny Nance, the CEO of Concerned Women for America. We did that before we went public with this information. Uh, 
Uh, and uh, she has since put out a blistering op-ed on foxnews.com uh, thanking Cato for what we're doing, but also denouncing the FBI for this kind of activity and, and raising a lot of the same fundamental concerns that I've just raised. One of the other issues here is that the right, the especially the, the more Trumpy right, believes that there is a deep state conspiracy uh, specifically against them and their preferred uh, candidates, uh, particularly the the candidate for president of the United States in 2016 and 2020. And this should do, will do absolutely nothing to allay any of those concerns. In fact, they, they validate them to to some extent. I don't think there's any question of that. And of course, you know, we're, we're announcing all of this, we're bringing this to the public's attention, you know, after this major league uh, series of news cycles with uh, with Tucker Carlson making claims about uh, NSA surveillance of him. Uh, I, I think a key difference in this episode is that we actually have the documents. You know, we, ha we actually have the, the hard evidence. That is not to say that Mr. Carlson's communications um, were not necessarily intercepted, you know, because of the very nature of the global communication system. Uh, if you make a telephone call from Washington, D.C. and you're trying to reach somebody in Atlanta, it is entirely possible that that call will be routed through London or somewhere else in Europe or maybe even Asia uh, before it actually gets to its intended recipient. And because of the nature of, of National Security Agency collection methods, it is entirely possible that those kinds of communications have been uh, intercepted. So while I'm not going to offer you know any kind of, of specific uh, definitive pronouncement about Mr. Carlson's claims. What I am going to say is that all of these episodes that we have spent so much time talking about on this podcast uh, and, and elsewhere throughout the entire Cato organization over the last decade plus only underscore why we need in the year that will mark the 20th anniversary of the passage of the Patriot Act, effectively a church committee 2.0 to examine all these things, to find out what is true and what is not true. So detail for us some of the other uh, things you've learned in undertaking this sort of big and also deep project of evaluating the the methods, the manner, and the predicates for government surveillance of civil society groups. I think, you know, one of the most alarming things uh, about this entire process that we've undertaken in the last two and a quarter years so far is really coming to understand just exactly how much oversight of these agencies and departments have, has completely atrophied in the last 20 years. Um, it, shouldn't, it shouldn't fall to organizations like Cato or the ACLU or any other civil society organization to have to try to essentially go after uh, records on every civil society organization that the FBI may have looked at, the Congress ought to have done this. They should have been doing it a long time ago. And I think for me, at least, that is one of the more you know damning things uh, and angering things fundamentally uh, is Congress not doing its job here. Uh, it's not like an awful lot of this kind of data hasn't been out there for a while. We've, we've managed to get more specific, I think, than almost any other organization. Uh, certainly in the, in the post 9-11 era, I definitely believe that. Uh, but you know, we are, like everyone else, forced to use the tools that are available to us. And the Freedom of Information Act, um, because Congress has not been aggressive in really reforming it and reining agencies' ability to withhold data in, um, 
we we continue to have to struggle, and that's why we have about 15 cases. Uh, Cato does uh, Freedom of Information Act cases active in the D.C. Circuit right now because of the obstructionism that we're encountering. I, I do believe that this problem is big. You know, the New York Times kind of gave us a sense of this a decade ago uh, when they managed to get the government to admit that the FBI had opened eighty, almost eighty-three thousand assessments on groups uh, in the two-year period between two thousand and nine and twenty eleven. It makes me suspicious that the actual number now is probably ten or fifteen times that. But the FBI continues to play games, which is why we have to litigate over this stuff. For nonprofits that have even an inkling that this kind of uh, surveillance is going on and that they are being prepared for an investigation that may never come to pass, what are the steps that they ought to take? You know, my general recommendation is if you are uh, part of an organization that is very heavily engaged in the public policy process, um, whether you are a traditional 501c3 nonprofit or whether you're a C4 and, and you have a little bit more in the way of political activity, uh, or even if, if you have an affiliated political action committee uh, or 527, something like that. I strongly encourage uh, certainly folks in leadership positions to file FOIAs uh, naming their organization itself, seeking records on the organization. But I also encourage folks to file a Privacy Act requests on themselves uh, to see you know, what kind of records uh, may be available. Um, I, I kind of played a hunch recently that um, because of some of my activities while I was at the CIA in the 1990s, that there might well be some records at the Clinton Presidential Library on myself. Uh, and that has, in fact, proved to be the case. There are about 400 pages of material uh, on me at the Clinton Library, and they're in the process of processing those now. Um, and the fact that somebody at the White House took an interest in what I was doing, I found very fascinating um, and also extremely alarming. But that's why I encourage folks to do this kind of thing. Uh, if you are politically active, if you're active in advocacy, uh, I don't care whether you're on the left, right, uh, somewhere in between, uh, working for an organization that does functional kinds of, of uh, things, you know, put in those requests. Uh, and if you need a little bit of help, if you got some questions, you know, don't hesitate to reach out to me. I'm always happy to to talk to folks about it. Patrick Eddington is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. The plea bargain, as it's practiced by prosecutors, has become a tool that helps pervert justice by penalizing people who seek a jury trial. Somil Trevetti of the American Civil Liberties Union is bringing a suit in Maricopa County, Arizona, to challenge how the plea bargain is used there. We spoke for the Cato Daily Podcast. A prosecutor's job is to seek justice. Is that fair? That's not only fair, uh, Caleb, but it's their professional obligation under their rules of ethics that they seek justice and not simply convictions. Um, but as we know all too well, uh, that paradigm has been reversed uh, over the last 50 years um, and due almost entirely to coercive plea bargaining. Okay. So you say coercive plea bargaining. Uh, you have made the claim that plea bargaining as a as an institution, as a set of rules, is itself coercive. Uh, let's try to dig down a little bit into exactly what makes plea bargaining coercive. If, if plea bargaining did not exist, uh, cases would either get dropped or cases would go to trial. Is that right? 
That's right. And then we'd have a better approximation of what the state considered serious and worthy of its resources. Um, not all plea bargaining has to be coercive. It's not a necessary element of the regime. It's just that the way it's been practiced in all of its history has become unduly coercive. And, and I'll tell you why. Um, because we have, as a society, unfortunately, handed prosecutors ever more punitive tools to make it not a bargain at all, but rather an exercise in extraction and coercion. And by that, I mean almost ubiquitous pretrial detention, which gives people an undue incentive to take whatever deal they can to get out and get back to their family and their jobs. Mandatory minimum sentences, which ratchet up what's called the trial penalty, right? The difference between what you could get in a lenient plea deal and what you might get at trial, which simply scares people into pleading. Um, there are many other elements like this that prosecutors know scare defendants, uh, and they use them with virtual impunity. And so I would say that the third major tool is the fact that judges have pretty much let this go on without any constitutional guardrails whatsoever. And that's why we sued in Maricopa County last week uh, to finally try to put some uh, modicum of control around how prosecutors bargain with defendants. So people may be familiar with Maricopa County for uh, being the domain of perhaps one of the worst sheriffs in uh, modern American history, Joe Arpaio. And uh, so you get the sense then at least that within Maricopa County, there is a strong punitive impulse among the voting public there. So what has been the effect and what is the practice of plea bargaining in Maricopa County? Yeah, you put that extremely kindly to Maricopa. <laughs> um, they have they are the third largest uh, judicial district in the country, uh, and they have prided themselves on a punitive approach to criminal justice that has destroyed lives and communities for decades. Uh, what they are doing with respect to plea bargaining is they have a, a sort of rocket docket court system called the early disposition courts uh, that were intended, at least publicly, to move low-level drug offenders quickly through the system and into drug treatment uh, and avoid uh, the convictions that often came uh, with drug prosecutions. Your mileage may vary on, on how laudable a goal that was, but at least they were trying. Um, but what the Maricopa County Attorney's Office did, what the prosecutors have done, is pervert the early disposition courts from avoiding convictions to coercing them. And the way that they do that is they tell every single defendant in that court system, if you reject the first offer that we give you, or if you assert your rights to pretty much anything, uh, a preliminary hearing where we can where we have to establish probable cause, uh, your right to trial, uh, your right to discovery. We are going to make the next plea offer, quote unquote, substantially harsher. And I say, quote unquote, because they actually write that down as a matter of policy and in big, bold capital letters at the top of every plea offer. If that's not a threat from the state to one of its citizens, I don't know what is. So. What are the practical effects of that? Uh, and I assume this is not just in Maricopa County. This is just an example. This is where you have a lawsuit. Uh, so th that's why we're talking about it. Uh, but practically speaking, 
how often do you end up with people who are not guilty but see this massive differential between the likelihood of their conviction if they take it to trial uh, and the penalties that would go with it versus what they're being offered in a plea deal? That's an important question. Uh, we don't know the numbers uh, because of the very nature of this system that it coerces even innocent people into pleading guilty, but the number is too high. You know, we know just based on extrapolation of exonerations that are known, that are public, that roughly four to five percent of people behind bars at any given time are innocent. Uh, given that we incarcerate 2.2 million people in the United States, that's uh, hundreds of thousands of people who, who might be innocent. Um, and you're right to say that what's happening in Maricopa isn't unique. It's just what's happening on steroids. Somil Trevetti is a senior staff attorney at the American Civil Liberties Union. The drug war marks its 50th anniversary this year. That's five decades too long. Democratic Representative Bonnie Watson-Coleman of New Jersey has a few ideas about how to jumpstart the process. We spoke for the Cato Daily Podcast. If you could, detail for me your understanding of what the drug war has done to the United States. I think that the drug war has devastated black and brown and poor communities. I think the drug war was a war on people. And it was a divisive tactic and a, mar a marginalization tactic and isolation tactic um, and a criminalization tactic uh, that was targeting populations that were not sort of supportive of Nixon and his uh, agenda. And so I think that the result of that is that there's an overpopulation of black and brown and poor people in prison. That's devastated families and communities, and it's also um, had a detrimental effect, I think, on the generations that they came after that. Uh, and I think that it has had um, dire consequences on individuals who have been incarcerated simply because they were um, found to be in possession of a substance that they were going to use for their personal use. What specifically are you proposing? Proposing a big shift, a shift of how we address those who have um, personal substance issues and taking it out of the hands of the Department of Justice, decriminalizing it uh, and taking it into the auspices of the Department of Health and Human Services and treating it as a, a health care issue as opposed to a criminal issue. And so by doing that, I think that we will save resources, save people, save communities, be able to apply those resources to evidence-based programs that uh, help individuals that are struggling with an addiction in their personal use. Um, I think it helps to restore their citizenship, their sense of community responsibility, it makes sure that they're no longer ineligible for important uh, federal support systems like SNAP and TANF and housing and things of that nature. And it, it helps them by giving them a real new start 
because what what it would do would be clean up um, past record, expunge, uh, reevaluate the sentencing of individuals who are currently incarcerated who would not uh, be uh, people who were incarcerated if this bill were in effect. Right. But the most important thing is that people just aren't going to jail anymore. They shouldn't. Uh, but the disparity that we have experienced as it re- relates to the application of law enforcement and the judicial system has resulted in the disparity of black and brown being negatively impacted. There are a lot of states, in fact, almost all the states still have uh, drug laws on the books and they will probably continue to have drug laws on the books. Why does it matter so much that the federal government uh, do this? Well, first of all, I think that we should be doing this as as uh, an example of what is good policy. Um, secondly, the federal government does have control of a lot of the resources, and states that do don't follow um, the, the sort of guidance that's offered under this under this piece of legislation would find themselves in a compromised position to access some of those uh, funding sources, and so we all know that. Affecting your income, whether it's a, a state entity, a, a municipality, or a person, um, affects your behavior and your response to things. So I, I believe connecting access to resources on the federal level to implementing what I think is a, an amazing reform movement as it relates to personal use of substance um, is is. is is a is a huge jump, and it is a, a, a an additional sort of um, vehicle to make sure that we are doing these things around the country, and there's more consistency in how we deal with people with their personal use issues. Most of the people of the United States, I believe, now live in a state that has legalized cannabis, either uh, recreationally or medically. Uh, Oregon. And Washington, D.C. have gone further. Uh, Washington, D.C. legalized uh, uh, mushrooms in this most recent election. And Oregon has decriminalized the possession of small amounts of basically all drugs. So um, you expect if if this legislation goes forward that uh, other states will sort of not feel that pressure from the feds anymore and decide, well, I think we can safely move ahead with this. Is that Part of the plan? Well, it certainly is. And it signals what our policy priorities are. And if our policy priorities are to, to, to treat um, substance abuse, uh, individual substance abuse, in a manner that uh, acknowledges the sort of the healthcare implications or the health need implications and do not justify uh, incarcerating people and associated costs with that, both financial costs and human costs, um, then there are states that would, would feel more comfortable in moving in the right direction, of course. Bonnie Watson Coleman is a Democratic U.S. representative from New Jersey. In June, the Food and Drug Administration gave marketing approval to the Alzheimer's drug Autohelm against the unanimous advice of its advisory panel. But one controversy that hasn't been covered is the basic right of Americans to consume whatever drugs they want. 
At a Cato Institute event in July, Cato's Michael Cannon detailed the missing part of the discussion about the new drug, that the FDA routinely stands in the way of Americans making their own medical decisions. A lot of people are angry that the FDA approved aducanumab, or what we usually call Agihelp, that's the brand name of this drug, uh, as a treatment for Alzheimer's. And there are two main objections uh, that you raise. The first is that the FDA should not have approved aducanumab because there is insufficient evidence that it's safe and effective for reducing cognitive decline in Alzheimer's patients. And a second and related objection is that the FDA should not have approved aducanumab because uh, or the brand name version of it, Agihelm, because Agihelm is extremely expensive. Uh, the Biogen is uh, setting the price at about $56,000 per patient per year. And as Nick has pointed out in the Atlantic, there are so many Medicare enrollees that would be uh, eligible for this drug, uh, that would be candidates for this drug, that uh, it could break the bank, so to speak. It could end up costing more than the entire part, Medicare Part D prescription drug program. I want to say a couple of things about each of those objections. Uh, what, the, what the people who raise the first objection are really saying is that they would prefer that patients not be free to make their own medical decisions when it comes to aducanumab. Uh, the people who raise the second objection are admitting that government is a terrible price negotiator, that, that despite the myth that government programs pay too little for medical care, the truth is that they often, or maybe even more often, pay too much for medical care. So uh, a, a little more about that first objection. Uh, it took a long time, but medical ethicists and patients' rights advocates over the past several decades were able to and finally convinced even physicians that patients have a fundamental human right to refuse medical treatment, even if doing so will harm their health. It follows from that, what we call the doctrine of informed consent, that patients likewise have a right to use whatever treatment they choose, even if doing so will harm their health that the right to make one's own medical decisions uh, is a fundamental human right, whether you're talking about opting not to receive treatment or opting for treatment. Now, this is not as strange a concept as it might seem in this day and age when the FDA makes that decision for patients on a routine basis. Patients have a right to travel. We would all acknowledge that patients have a right to travel to other countries to use medications that the FDA has not approved. Patients have a right to use prescription and over-the-counter medications that the FDA has approved for so-called off-label uses that the FDA has not yet approved. And what this implies is not that the FDA should not, the idea that patients have a right to make their own medical decisions, this implies not that the FDA should have approved aducanumab, but that the government never should have blocked it from the market in the first place because doing so denies patients their fundamental human right to make their own medical decisions. Uh, the FDA, unfortunately, exists to deny patients those rights. Laws requiring pharmaceutical manufacturers to obtain pre-market approval from a government agency denies patients their right to make uh, these medical decisions. If some people had their way, unfortunately, the FDA would still be denying patients their right to choose this drug. With regard to cost, yes, certainly the way Congress has written the laws governing the Medicare program, the Medicaid program, uh, approving aducanumab will result in an increase in government spending. It'll increase the burden of Medicare, the burden that Medicare imposes on taxpayers. It'll increase out-of-pocket spending for enrollees. Uh, it'll increase Part B premiums. We could tell the same story in Medicaid. It's going to increase federal and state spending on the Medicaid program. But the problem here is not that the FDA approved aducanumab. The problem is that government is a terrible price negotiator. 
in the Part B program, uh, the Part B part of the Medicare program that will reimburse doctors for administering these drugs and therefore indirectly pay Biogen for uh, for this drug, Medicare pays about 106% of the price that private payers pay. Medicaid uses a similar uh, mechanism to set prices the prices that it pays for prescription drugs. These pricing schemes are inherently inflationary. And yet these are the uh, pricing schemes that the government puts in place. They guarantee that the government is going to pay higher prices for prescription drugs. And they even increase the prices that private payers end up paying because pharmaceutical companies have an incentive to increase the prices they charge to private payers so that they can get higher prices out of the government. Uh, another indication that the that Medicare is, and the government is not a very good price negotiator is the government even requires, the Congress even requires Medicare and Medicaid, in some cases, private insurers to cover medicines for uses that the FDA has not approved. Federal law requires the Medicare program to rely on uh, drug compendia to certify the efficacy of off-label uses. And if those compendia certify uh, those off-label uses, then Medicare has to cover those drugs. So it's going to be very hard for the Medicare program to say no to a drug that the FDA has approved. And taxpayers are going to end up paying through the nose for this drug, not because the manufacturer is greedy and sets such a high price, although the manufacturer may be greedy, but because the government has encouraged the manufacturer to set such a high price and uh, promised that it will pay those uh, inflated prices that it encourages the manufacturer to charge. The solution here to the problem of whether insurers should pay for this drug is the same as the solution to the problem of whether patients should use it. We should just be letting the patients choose. Different providers and insurers will adopt different rules about whether and when to cover aducanumab and uh, other drugs. Uh, I think, Jeff, you mentioned that the Cleveland Clinic and Mount Sinai have said they will not be administering this, uh, this treatment to patients. Uh, and then patients will sort themselves into different insurance plans and health systems depending on their preferences for risk and access to novel medicines. But the solution to the problem of whether insurers should pay for this and other expensive drugs is not to have the FDA keep denying patients their right to make these medical decisions. Michael Cannon directs health policy studies at the Cato Institute. Drones are a promising new technology, but they pose unique regulatory and privacy issues. How can entrepreneurs and hobbyists safely use drones without leading to the violation of Americans' privacy? The new Cato Institute book, Eyes to the Sky, Privacy and Commerce in the Age of the Drone, tackles these and other thorny issues. The authors suggest policies to protect both economic dynamism and your privacy. To find out more, get your copy of Eyes to the Sky, available now at Cato.org. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.